Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler Holtz. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Jonathan D. Pearl. Uh, He's one of the authors of this book entitled Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. It's the third edition. How are you doing today, doctor? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling the audience a few words about yourself and the other authors and how you got started on this project. Of course. So my name is Dr. Jonathan DiPiro. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. I'm also the associate director of Mount Sinai's Center for Stress, Resilience, and Personal Growth which provides behavioral health care and resilience building resources to all of the healthcare workers that work for the Mount Sinai health system. I trained as a clinical psychologist, so I have my PhD in clinical psychology. And that's about it for me. I want to tell you about my other co-authors too, who couldn't be here to be with us today. So first, um, Dr. Dennis Charney, is the Dean of the Icon School of Medicine and a world expert in the biology of resilience and depression. He's helped develop a lot of novel treatments for depression and really has been a pioneer in our understanding of resilience. And our late colleague, Dr. Stephen Southwick, passed away last April, April 2022, um, and he was a national leader in the science of resilience, looking at resilience in veterans and in other populations like World Trade Center first responders uh, and was a professor at Yale in the Department of Psychiatry and at the VA. You have been at the forefront of research into resilience for many years. And then the pandemic hit for everyone and they experienced trauma. Did you, what was your collective response to the pandemic? Was it the way uh, you expected Did anything surprise you? Yeah, so our collective response, particularly at Mount Sinai, was to start a center to address the resilience and mental health needs of our healthcare workers, the center I mentioned in my introduction. And it was really clear from our work with World Trade Center first responders that we needed to put services and supports in place right away. And those needed to continue on as people recovered from the acute effects of the pandemic. One of the things that struck me and struck us is that there were so many strengths that people showed, even in the midst of suffering. Uh, People bonded together, especially our colleagues and uh, fellow healthcare workers at Mount Sinai. There was a tremendous leadership support. There was a healthy dose of optimism. People faced their fears in a tremendous way. So we saw a lot of resilience in the midst of suffering. And it also reminded us about the experience we call post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic growth is the experience of having 
a positive change in your life following or as a result of a traumatic event. So after traumatic experiences like the pandemic, for example, a lot of our healthcare workers told us that they built new relationships. They had a new sense of their personal strengths and their personal abilities. They had a new sense of what's meaningful in their lives. And that happened in the midst of suffering. It wasn't just a positive that came out. The post-traumatic growth was related to distress that they felt as a result of their work taking care of patients with COVID, many of whom passed away. How did you measure a person's resiliency? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And that's actually a challenge for the field um, because there are lots of different ways to think about resilience. So in our original research over the years, we've measured resilience a few different ways. Uh, One is to use a measure called the Connor Davidson scale, which is a measure of people's people report on their ability to bounce back after challenges, for example. And that's a very common questionnaire that assesses resilience. Uh, And we've also looked at resilience as the absence of PTSD or depression after a traumatic event. So if you go through something really challenging and you don't develop a mental health condition, one definition or one way of assessing it is just to look at who does and doesn't meet criteria for a condition after a life-threatening event. So those are two basic ways we've looked at it. Another way more recently is that we actually developed our own scale uh, to measure resilience, what we call the Mount Sinai Resilience Scale. We recently published on it, and it follows in part from the factors in the book, a number of other factors as well, where it asks people to tell us about how they've connected to things like altruism, social support, meaning and purpose, physical exercise uh, during and after stressful events. So there's a lot of different ways that we've looked at resilience. We can also look at the biology of resilience, what happens in people's brains as they manage difficult emotions. In the book, you talk about 10 core principles that resilient people share. Can these traits be learned or are they innate? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Each of these different chapters, each of these different Um, factors described in the chapters can be learned. I'm a clinical psychologist. I teach people skills all the time. Um, And in fact, at the end of every chapter are exercises, activities that people can do to boost themselves up in certain key areas. So yes, it it can be learned. Part of it is inherited. We know that almost everything in our life is some combination of nature and nurture or genes and environment. Um, and we, we know we can point to resilient people in our life who seem to have been born that way. Um, but everything that we've written about can be learned. What did you find concerning uh, the toll of all the healthcare workers during this time period? Right. So one of the things that we noticed, and our colleague, Dr. Jonathan Ripp and Dr. Lauren Pecorello did some of this work very early on, what was very concerning as of April 2020, that first wave in New York, was that 39% of our healthcare workers that we surveyed told us that they were experiencing significant symptoms of depression, anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder. So nearly 40%, uh, which really showed the tremendous burden of distress that they were experiencing. They were seeing life and death 
situations up close at a higher volume than they'd ever seen before. Uh, there were limited there was limited knowledge about treatments that were available. There was an onrush of patients coming into the hospital, as you might have seen. We had to set up a tent in Central Park to handle some of the overflow of patients. And so we were going through something that was really a challenge to the institution and a challenge to individual coping. So that's really what stood out to us in terms of distress. And certainly those rates of distress came down, but not to zero as the rates of COVID came down and we began to be able to discharge people home from the hospital relatively healthy. The first edition of Resilience came out about 10 years ago. The edition now is full of new material about the pandemic and current events, many personal stories, and the latest science. What's the most important thing you learned in the past decade? Do we know more about how the brain processes trauma now? We absolutely know more about how the brain process, processes trauma. And one of the things that we know is that there are many brain areas implicated in handling stressful and traumatic events in recovery from trauma. It's many parts, including the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the cingulate cortex, all working together to help to undergird, to support individual coping. And we've known a tremendous amount about the blood biomarkers associated with resilience. So molecules that we find in the blood that help people you know, in high levels um, cope with difficult experiences um, and facilitate that coping rather. And we've learned a tremendous amount about the factors that support resilience. I think one of the most reliable findings out of the past decade, even since that first edition was written, was how much research supports social support, having somebody in your corner emotionally, having someone to take you to doctor's appointments, having someone to vent to at the end of a difficult day. That has been shown to be tremendously important across many different populations going through difficult times. And I'll just add to that, that one of the newest findings is that giving support to other people being that emotional support to other people actually comes back on you in a positive way. It mirrors back on you and has a positive impact. And that's really only a recent development in the literature. Um, actually, our colleague, Dr. Southwick, was working on that. Uh, our co-author, uh, as he passed away, he was working on a manuscript describing giving social support and its impact on the mental health of veterans. Now, one of the traits of many resilient people is the belief in a higher power or sense of faith. Why is that? And what does it mean for non-believers? Right. And I don't want your listeners to think because they don't have a religious uh, belief system or faith that they are somehow less resilient. Um, what research has shown is that independently and sometimes together, spirituality and religion have a positive impact on physical health and on mental health and emotional well-being. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the difference of the two. So spirituality is, broadly speaking, a sense of being connected to something greater than yourself. It could be a higher power. It could be a higher purpose. Uh, it could be even some sense of you know value system that you're connected to that's giving you that sense that you're existing for something greater. And 
religion is t- tends to be more formalized, involving attendance at some kind of worship service or belonging to a particular faith group. Um, and one of the reasons why it's so important is it helps us get outside our heads a little bit. Um, it gives us meaning and purpose in our in our lives in a world that can feel like it doesn't have meaning and purpose. Uh, faith and spirituality can give that meaning and purpose. And religious attendance and going to a service actually is physically activating. Uh, it's no longer COVID times where we connect over Zoom. So you actually have to get up and shower and dress and show up someplace and moving your body and having a sense of hope and a sense of community there are the additional benefits. Uh, but again, it doesn't need to be church or synagogue or mosque or temple. It could be, for example, some people do yoga or meditation. Some people like to take um, walks in the woods. They hike. They like to look up at the stars. Some sense of connecting to something greater and getting outside of our own individual worries. Let's come back to the 10 core principles that you found resilient people have. Let's look at number one. Tell us about that one. Right. So the first principle that we talk about is optimism. So connecting to a sense that uh, your challenges are temporary, that you have some control over your present circumstance, and that you can focus on what's directly in front of you. People who are pessimistic tend to worry about things that are well outside their control, worry about the future and the what-if situations, and people who are optimistic focus on what's directly in front of them and what they can do to make their situation better. They also see their challenges as temporary, even though they might not know when they'll stop or when the challenges will end. Seeing them as temporary is a a mental relief. Um, What are four ways in which people can become more optimistic? Yeah, so there's plenty of ways to become more optimistic. One of the ways is to acknowledge your successes. So I tell this to my staff. I tell them to keep an email inbox full of positive messages that they've received, which can be a kind of a mental cushion against the daily stressors of what happens in our jobs. And focusing on gratitude, focusing on victories and wins and noting them, writing about them, talking about them to other people help, helps you to connect to the positive aspects of life. The other things that you can do are challenge the negative judgments that you might have about yourself. Uh, I'm a failure. I'm never good enough. I'm, this situation's never going to end. The always and never categorical thinking that we have, trying to challenge that a little bit. Another one is nothing to do with your mind, but more to do with your body, acting in positive ways. For people with depression, we call this behavioral activation, which is getting up and getting moving, even if you don't feel like it. So getting up and going to see friends, getting up and going to a faith community, getting up and going someplace, exercising, uh, even if you don't feel like it. So acting in positive ways can create opportunities for joy and connecting to positive emotions. It's not guaranteed, but it is much better than being sedentary, stuck with your worry thoughts. Chapter three, you talk about facing your fears. Tell us something about how people can face their fears. Yeah. So facing your fears is exceptionally important. Uh, Leaning into what you feel challenged by. So I'll give you an example. 
a lot of people, um, particularly even prior to COVID, were afraid of public speaking. And so they, when you're afraid of something, you avoid it. You avoid opportunities to speak in public, speak in class, re- even raising your hand. Uh, but then oftentimes there are situations where you can't avoid it anymore. You absolutely need to, to pass a class or to get a promotion at work or to do a big presentation. And so one of the ways that you can challenge that fear is to break it into tiny pieces. Uh, Do what's called an exposure or fear hierarchy, where you think about the easiest thing or the least fearful thing to do, the least fearful piece of it, then somewhat more fearful and challenging, and then somewhat more and somewhat more still until at the top of the pyramid is the day of the big speech itself. So this might involve starting off by writing down what you're going to say and saying it in front of the mirror 10 times or 20 times. Then it might involve saying it in front of a loved one or a friend and then in front of a smaller group and getting feedback on the presentation and then gradually chipping away that fear. You learn that you can tolerate the difficult emotions You learn that you don't need to avoid because the anxiety itself won't kill you. And then you, when you actually do the thing, you probably are quite impressed at yourself for having done it. It might not be the most elegant presentation you'll ever give in your life, but you would have survived it and gotten through it. And then the next time you have to give a talk, it's easier because you have that experience of, okay, it was uncomfortable, but I did it. I can remember the first talk I gave in graduate school my hands were shaking and I was sweating. And now it comes naturally to me. I don't have to hesitate about what I'm saying. Um, But that first time was so tough. And I was in front of a familiar audience who were all friends. And I also, I felt incredibly nervous and doing it time and time and time again, it got less anxiety provoking every time as I built up successes. Chapter four, you talk about the moral compass. What does that mean? Yeah, it's really about having a what for in life and having a clear sense of what's right and wrong for you. Um, And for a lot of people, this has been a guardrail during difficult times. Um, For example, during uh, we, our colleague, um, Steve Southwick and Dr. Charney interviewed Vietnam War POWs, and they talked about having rules that they lived by in the POW camp. They had to make up their own rules. Um, to help them survive. And everybody agreed to do the same thing. And it bound the community together. And I think, you know, certainly these days, it can feel like there is no moral compass, or you're at, you're standing on top of a magnet where the compass is twirling around, no one knows up from down, but having a clear direction, and people might get this from their faith, or from philosophy, or from their parents, or their upbringing, Um, having a clear philosophy um, as a a guidepost is exceptionally important. And people can reorient to that and reorient to living according to their values in difficult times. And that conveys a sense of recovery. Now, in chapter seven, you look at role models and you talk about how important it is to, to have these role models. Give us some examples of this. Right. Role models are exceptionally important. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is that I think during the pandemic, what we saw is the increasing importance or a lot of increasing attention paid to the role of the leader, the role of the manager or the boss, as you might say, 
in a workplace and they are role models. They're role models to their employees. Our research during the pandemic showed that managers, bosses who were physically present, emotionally available, reliable, clear communicators had staff that actually fared better in terms of their mental health during the worst of the pandemic. There, that, lead, that perceived leadership, that perception of the leader as a role model that was present and unshakable, at least to some extent, um, directly impacted the health of the employee. And I think that's one thing that's been really important that we've actually done a lot of work on um, as a center at Mount Sinai with our collaborators and colleagues is built, boosting up leaders so that they can be the best and most effective role models for their staff, even during the most trying times. And another kind of role model is a parent um, or a grandparent. I was just actually, I just had Thanksgiving dinner a couple of days ago with my grandfather, um, my paternal grandfather, who is a tremendous role model for me. He's incredibly altruistic and curious and giving. He's also, at least was, much more outgoing than I was. He would ask anybody anything and learn their entire biography, um, you know, sitting across from them at a dinner table or bumping into them at a meeting, he'd come away knowing everything about their life. And for a while, that wasn't me. And I learned from him um, that that is a skill that can be built up, that people appreciate getting to know them. And he has absolutely no fear in social situations. And I'm, I'm building on that in myself. So he is a tremendous role model for me. And I have taken pieces of his behavior and his personality and integrated them into my own life. What about negative role models? Yeah. So I, I can think about my time in school and I had mentors who were um, great communicators. I had mentors who were incredibly giving of their time there were mentors that are incredibly productive in terms of writing papers and writing grants. Um, but some of those same people got angry very easily or um, they couldn't deal with disappointment or frustration. And for what I've, what, I co- what I've come to do and what I encourage other people to do is to take little pieces of what works from each mentor or role model and Put the rest aside. And what you'll learn is that no mentor, no role model is perfect. They're not a role model generally for every situation in every part of your life. They're really good at some things. I might struggle more with others. So you have to sort of piece together in your mind a, a kind of collage of the best of each of the role models that you've encountered. Chapter eight, you talk about um, the body, the diet, how is that so important to a person's mind? Right, right. I think that's another thing that we've learned over the past decade that's been reinforced is that the mind and the body are not so separate. Physical and mental health are not as separate as we've made them out to be, I, I think, over, these, over the past you know, five or six decades. And what we know and what there's a lot of research to show is that even a little bit of physical exercise goes a long way. So a little bit of physical exercise can help people with depression recover from their depression. It can help people, it can prevent people um, 
rather from developing conditions like depression and anxiety. It can serve as a protective factor, lowering the likelihood of of developing a mental health condition. Um, And it does this through a variety of different mechanisms, some of which are still being understood. Some anti-inflammatory properties, some stress-relieving properties of exercise also boosts your self-esteem and your self-confidence. It probably gets you hanging out with people. That's good for your mood. Um, And it also gives you a sense of accomplishment. I really honestly just started exercising myself in the past year, and it's done wonders for my self-confidence and helped me really see that through gradually pushing myself, I could end up in a much, much better place. Are resilient people more life learners? Absolutely. I, I think one of the key aspects of resilience that we've seen, particularly in our work from veterans, is curiosity. Learning about people, learning about new things, being open to new ideas, being open to being challenged, um, connecting to new opportunities for growth. Uh, as an example, my wife and I have been doing the New York Times crossword puzzle for almost a whole year, 360-something days straight, every night we do the New York Times crossword puzzle. And it's been great for our relationship. It's been great for our mind. Uh, it's great for word finding. Um, there are some funny puns in there. Um, and it's been a, a routine that we can look forward to rain or shine. We could be in different time zones. We can be halfway across the globe. There was a time earlier this year where she was in the Middle East and I was in New York and we're many hours different with the New York Times because it uh, brought us together and it was good for both of our brains and both of our uh, hearts. In chapter 10, you talk about the cognitive, emotional, and flexibility. And that first sentence you said, People who are resilient tend to be flexible. What does this mean? Right. So one of the key features of resilience, and this is in part from work from our colleague at Columbia University, George Bonanno, is flexibility. So people who are resilient tend to see multiple solutions to a problem. They can see, um, they can manage their emotions in many different ways. They don't have just one tool in their toolbox for dealing with anger or sadness or anxiety. Um, And they can take negative thoughts they might have about themselves, self-judgments or negative thoughts they might have about other people, and see those more realistically, more helpfully from many different perspectives. They're not just stuck in one way of acting, one way of seeing the world, and one way of feeling. They can pull a variety of different different strategies from a really big construction uh, person size toolbox of of, um, different ways of dealing with things. Um, And people who tend to be less resilient have a very tiny toolbox. They might have a butter knife or they might just have one Allen wrench that's the wrong size. Um, But people who are resilient have that huge, huge craftsman set of tools. Chapter 11, you talk about meaning, purpose, and growth. Um, What can we learn about resilient people? Uh, Are they different in that manner? Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, one of the key aspects of that chapter is post-traumatic growth. And what we know is that some people, actually most people, you could say from the research, who go through difficult situations 
over time come to realize that they've changed in at least one positive way as a result of the experience. Um, but we, what we also know about this post-traumatic growth is that it's related to some degree of suffering. So we know that people with post-traumatic stress disorder actually endorse more post-traumatic growth than people without PTSD. Um, and we actually know that people with moderate PTSD symptoms have more growth than people with extreme or no PTSD symptoms. So there's an intricate, complicated relationship between distress and growth. So it's not just rainbows and butterflies um, after a traumatic event. There's a lot of struggle that people go through and even some struggle that leads to PTSD that can also lead to someone seeing themselves as stronger, being stronger, having more solid relationships, having a new sense of purpose and meaning in their life as a result of um, the event. Chapter 12, the practice of resiliency. Uh, can you say that people in our um, in, in your study, did they practice resiliency? Yeah, this is a key understanding. The idea here is just like any skill. Say you were learning to play the piano or playing chess or training for a marathon. My brother just ran the New York City Marathon. Um, you have to put time into that. All of these skills are not just one and done. Okay, I practiced being optimistic once on this day for five minutes. I'm good. I'm an optimistic person. No, you have to invest significant effort into the practice of resilience, ideally before the challenges come. It's really important that you look, perhaps you look through the book and figure out, okay, these things will probably work for me. Let me put some time into them so that when I um, have a challenging or traumatic event, and actually most adults will over the course of their lives, unfortunately, you have a sufficient toolkit to manage those uh, challenges. And it's, again, it just takes a little bit of work each day. And that makes a whole lot of difference. You know, for example, social relationships, making connections, talking to friends. I, throughout the week, send text messages to my colleagues or my friends to say, hey, how are you doing? And that builds a relationship that puts money in the bank when I need it, when they need me. Um, I, they know and I know that we're there for each other. And that just takes 30 seconds to send a text message or reach out to someone. Uh, it's not an elaborate having to plan an event to hang out together. Not anymore, not with technology. So those kinds of things, again, go a long way. And actually what we've done of our healthcare workers at Mount Sinai is that we've developed training programs where they can learn uh, some of these factors. They can learn it at work. They can learn it in an app that we developed um, to build up their resilience through gradual practice. At the very end of the book, you did um, tribute to Dr. Steve Southwick. Would you like to tell us about that? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Stephen Southwick, our friend and collaborator, passed away in April of 2022 as the third edition of the book was being written. He saw some early chapters. Um, I was really grateful for that. Um, and he interviewed some people for the book with me. Um, and that those were just amazing um, experiences that I had. I got to be a collaborator with him for a while. And he is just an, 
was just an amazing person. In addition to being a just absolutely prolific researcher in PTSD and resilience, he practiced what he preached, talking about daily practice. Um, so he was diagnosed with prostate cancer around 2017. And at the time he was diagnosed, it was already advanced prostate cancer. It was metastatic. It was spread throughout other parts of his body. And he fought so hard. And one of the things that he did, which was just so striking, is that he didn't give up on anything that was important to him before. In fact, he just did more of it. He was a physical person before, very physically active, did kayak races and canoeing and other kinds of things. And he kept doing it, kept doing it even though he was tired, even though he must have been sore. He kept doing it because it gave him meaning and purpose. And he became even more altruistic. He retired from his professorial role, but he kept mentoring people. He kept writing papers. He contributed to the development of programs at Yale and at Mount Sinai. And toward the very end, and this is what we talk about in the book, he really leaned into the experience of love, daily experiences of love, which maybe should be the 11th resilience factor. So in the week before he died, he was... Uh, in the hospital with a significant bladder issue that nearly killed him. And he kept telling everybody that came into his room from the janitor to the nurse, the physician, the surgeon, that he loved them and that he appreciated them. And that was tremendous. He kept telling people how much he cared about them, how grateful he was to them for their efforts to try to save his life and to ease his pain all while going through probably the worst pain, that a, worst physical pain that a human being can endure. Uh, so in the, his worst moments, he was reaching out with love. What is the overall message you want to leave the reader with once they finish your book? Yeah, so the overall message, I think, is that there are many roads to resilience. There are many pathways to recover, adapt, and grow from life's challenges. And it's really about finding what works for you, that there's actually significant science behind the factors that we're putting forth and describing the book. Uh, in this third edition, there are stories that are compelling that illustrate these factors. And I think this sets us apart from a number of other books that talk about growth or that talk about uh, overcoming challenges in that we are grounded in four or five decades of solid neuroscience and solid psychiatric research, uh, much of which we've done ourselves, some of which done by our colleagues and collaborators. So we have a significant scientific grounding to what we're recommending. It's not pseudoscience. It is legitimate science that is increasingly um, getting a lot of attention. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Yeah, so that's a very good question. I am doing a good amount of work now understanding how people um, respond to our new resilience scale, the Mount Sinai resilience scale. So we're doing some what we call measure validation work where we give the scale to different populations of people, uh, patients with depression, undergoing treatment for depression, uh, people in the general population of the United States to look at how people with, uh, across different demographic groups or age groups uh, respond on the scale and how it might predict how people cope with challenging events. So we're going to be doing a lot of work 
understanding new ways to measure resilience. And unfortunately, the events of these past few months with global conflict have given us uh, even more, I would say, motivation to understand factors that contribute to resilience in the midst of so much suffering. Well, I'd like to thank you for being on the podcast. And again, we've been talking with Dr. Jonathan DePiro, the author of Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. Thank you. Thank you.